The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. read a short passage today, the end of John 19, beginning at verse 38, the burial of Jesus as John gives an account of it. Listen to God's Word. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now the place where he was crucified was a garden And in the garden was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. And this is God's holy word. Father, help us to see things perhaps with keener insight that we have heard and seen before. Impress upon us the depth of and the height of the conquest of Jesus that is here. We ask in his name. Amen. If you were to go to Israel and Jerusalem in particular as a tourist, almost certainly your tour guide will direct you to see the garden tomb, as it is called in Jerusalem. This is a real tomb from Bible times, not a modern recreation. We don't know exactly how long ago it was made. In older times, it stood outside the city wall, but of course Jerusalem has expanded a great deal since earlier days, and it now is well inside the city. If you see the garden tomb approaching it, you feel like you're immediately recognizing something you've seen in the literature of your Sunday school lessons from early childhood times, a very low square door you have to duck to enter in, and you are allowed to go inside. It's not a very big chamber. Only a few people could go in at a time. There are two different ledges carved out on which bodies might be laid in this tomb, and people, of course, go there in a great posture of reverence and prayer and thinking about the resurrection of Christ. There's a circular stone propped against the door that could be rolled into position to seal it up. And the whole thing is located in a grove of trees with chairs and terraces where people might gather for prayer or worship services. My only visit there in 1997, I was privileged to conduct a communion service for our folks who were with us there. 
The garden tomb is absolutely everything you imagined from Sunday school that would correctly characterize the tomb of Jesus, except we have no definite knowledge that it is the place where Jesus was buried. Most scholars agree that it could be, but is not necessarily the only possible place. In fact, probably the better place is within the Church of the Holy Sepulchre where the actual tomb has long been obscured by things built on top of it. It doesn't really matter, does it, that we know the exact spot of Jesus' grave? In fact, I would tell you that it would even probably be a hindrance if we knew it because then we would be tending to worship a particular stone grotto instead of the Savior whose dead body was contained there. But today as we think about the burial of Jesus, I want to remind you that the burial of our dead is certainly an action that God approves of. The human body is a vehicle in which we sin. We sin with our mouths, we sin with our hands and feet, and every other part of our body when we have the opportunity, and yet God does not condemn human bodies. He made them. He designed them. He said in Scripture they reflect His image in some manner. Not that God is a man with the same form as we have, but He created us as we are. He had His Son inhabit a body like ours for 30-plus years and die in that body and rise in a glorified version of that body and even ascend into heaven with the wounds of the nails still visible in his glorified body. We are told in Scripture, we who know Christ will behold him in heaven, and it is Christ in some recognizable bodily form, we would believe, that we will recognize. We're never told that we will see God the Father. There are mysteries there. We don't know exactly what it means to see God, except that God allowed us to see Him in the person of Jesus Christ, who said, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And it is God, remember, who made our bodies, and we should honor these bodies when we no longer have a use for them as living persons. A Christian's mortal body is called the temple of the Holy Spirit. We don't merely throw it aside or despise it because the person who wore it in life is no longer able to use it. Every one of us in this room, not a happy thought, I suppose, to you right now on a nice morning when it's almost spring, every one of us in this room is going to die unless Christ comes first. Every one of us will lay aside our body and someone else will have to deal with it, bury it. And we will be put aside ourselves in a grave and token of the expectation of having a new body one day in glorified form that will be something far beyond what we can even imagine right now. I'm going to see three things here in our text. It's a commonplace text in one regard. There's nothing really spectacular happening here. It seems like very ordinary things, but I think there are some truths we can draw from this text. I believe the burial of Jesus is instructive about, first of all, Christian attitudes towards death and burial. 
and the respect to be shown a body. Secondly, it suggests to us that a funeral is an opportune time when some people respond to the gospel in ways they never have before. And thirdly, we see here at least the sign of hope that believers' bodies, which are composed of biological dust, as the Bible calls them, await a fabulous future when graves will no longer contain them. So first, our text here in John 19 shows that Scripture encourages respectful treatment of human bodies. That may seem obvious, but we could talk about that for a minute. Do you realize what a switch happens here once the body of Jesus is truly dead on the cross? For the previous 18 hours from his arrest onward, his physical body had received nothing but disrespectful, horrible, violent, profane, offensive treatment, brutal infliction of pain, spitting at him, mocking him. Nothing that was gentle or kind had been done to him in the last part of a day. Now suddenly that his body is dead, it's handled with care and with tenderness. And none but the best provisions are good enough. He's given a brand new tomb. And by the way, if you wondered, why does it say, why does it note a new tomb? Well, we know that there and other places in the ancient world, some places this is still practiced. A body is put in a mausoleum or a crypt and until it decays and then the bones are collected in a box. They called it an ossuary in the first century. And the bones are stored elsewhere and another body of that same family would then be in that tomb. This is a brand new tomb. Interesting that Jesus got a brand new one where no one had ever lain before. And so he was put in this tomb carefully and reverently, and and this is done consistent with what Jewish practice had been for centuries. You can do a brief study. It won't really take you a long time to study examples of burials in the Old Testament and even into the New The first burial I'm able to find in the Old Testament is that of uh, Sarah, the wife of Abraham. Abraham greatly loved his wife. He didn't even own any land in which he could bury her. He had to buy some land. They offered to give it to him, and he said, no, I will pay for uh, land for my dear Sarah to be buried. And so she was buried. And then along came Rachel. By the way, Sarah's burial is in Genesis 23. Rachel's burial is described in Genesis 35. And then similarly, the burials of Jacob come along, Genesis 49. And then Joseph in a foreign land in Egypt, because that's where the Israelites were, and that's where Joseph was as a ruler in Genesis 50. Joseph is the only one in the Bible who was ever embalmed. That isn't hard to figure out, or that is the only Israelite who was ever embalmed, as far as we know. Why? Because he was in Egypt. He was a ruler of Egypt, and Egypt were the great specialists on embalming the dead. They wrapped the body and had all kinds of procedures that they had of trying to preserve that body, because for them, the body itself was everything and was almost to be worshipped. Well, we find the usual practice of the Jews became that they wrapped bodies soaked in linens. It's described here in verse 40 of our text. 
Jesus was bound in linen cloths with spices, as was the burial custom of the Jews. They had developed this centuries before, not as embalming, but more just to make the body more pleasant to be around. If you were going to go and pray, maybe open the tomb and go in and and pray where the body was, uh, you would find your senses would tell you is necessary for something to sweeten the air. And that's what, remember, Jesus was given myrrh at his birth. Many people think as a token, even at his birth, that he was born with a purpose that he would die. And so we hear about the large quantity of these spices that are brought to treat this battered and bruised body. We have another uh, New Testament funeral, John 11, remember, told about Lazarus being put in a tomb in there several days when Jesus said, open the door of the tomb. They said, Lord, he smells terrible. Don't do that. But Jesus raised him to life. And we have another notable funeral, that of Stephen, the first martyr of Christianity, killed in the book of Acts. And Acts 8.2 says, devout men buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. So we have enough to tell us that burial, in a loving way, was the funeral norm in Scripture for Israelites and then for Christians. Now I insert here as a sidebar, because it would come up in your mind if I didn't deal with it, the question, well, does that displace then any possibility of cremation, as is often done today? I think the funeral industry tells us that close to now 40% of all bodies that funeral homes deal with are cremated. Now, that's way up from where it once was, and you maybe know some of the reasons. It's less expensive. There's less land to bury people on, especially in urban areas. People say, what about it? Is cremation a problem? Does the Bible say something about it? My answer to them is not really. All we have on the subject are the statements that some draw from and and make a conclusion that I don't think is warranted, that after great battles, the Israelites might have been fighting some Canaanite group, and let's say they triumphed, and they had 150 dead, and the Canaanites had 500 dead. It will tell you in several Old Testament places that the Israelites buried their dead and that they burned the corpses of their enemies. Now, some people draw a conclusion from that and say, well, that must mean burial is honorable and cremation is dishonorable. But the fact is the Scripture does not say any such thing in any direct manner, that there's a moral or ethical issue involved there at all. And I think that conclusion is unwarranted from the evidence that's there. It could well be that burning enemy corpses is simply a quick and efficient way to clean up a battlefield quite honestly, with no moral judgment involved. I believe we're unwarranted in saying that cremation is a dishonorable way to deal with a human body. As long as it is conducted in a respectful manner, we do not see that as a wrong thing for Christians to choose. Scripture encourages respectful treatment of human remains. We'll move on from that obvious thing. And secondly, we see what's happening here in this text, John 19, 38 and following, that funerals can be a time for some to have a discovery of spiritual breakthrough. 
something happened to two men here that had not gotten through to them or had not affected them the same way while Jesus was alive. And now that his heart was no longer beating, you could say the cold body of Jesus was exerting an influence on these people and on others as well. In John 12, 32, Jesus had said while he was living, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Here was a lifeless body, the fact that he had died, drawing to him some who were destined to be people of faith, who had not been won over by hearing his living sermons or realizing his miracles that went on. Great things like that did not seem to quite get them over the edge to be an out-and-out avowed disciple, but his death did. Isn't it amazing what God's Spirit will use? Different means to reach different people. And of course, tens of thousands and millions have been reached since the time that Jesus was alive in his physical first body on this earth. Well, the first, of course, here was Joseph of Arimathea. We think the town he was from is called Ramah. Although in other language it may have been referred to by the the word Arimathea. He was a rich and notable Jewish leader. He was part of that Sanhedrin council that led the temple, the very group that had hustled Jesus around, grabbed him, arrested him, brought him before Pilate, and insisted that he be killed. He was a member of that. Well, Luke 23, 51 brings in the little fact that says Joseph was, quote, a good and righteous man who had not consented to kill Jesus. So you think about him. Here he is, an insider witness in the very group that had condemned Christ. Quite possibly, he was present at the cross. We're not told that explicitly, but it seems entirely possible that he was there. And here was a man who knew what injustice was, And finally, now that Jesus is dead, he's ready to act against what he knew to be injustice. John Calvin's commentary on this passage in John has him say this. Calvin wrote, quote, Christ's death exerted a more quickening influence on some people than did his life. Joseph wasn't won over yet just by the teaching of Jesus or the miracles of Jesus, but now he responds to the death. Of Jesus, And with him, of course, comes another named Nicodemus. Both of them out of this council. Both of them wealthy. Both of them, to some extent, influential. They were people to be reckoned with. They were both people who had enough stature to be able to come to Pilate and ask something and probably be granted the request if it was a reasonable request. This man, Nicodemus, remember, you've met him way back in John, chapter 3. You remember Nicodemus, the teacher who came at night as if he was not willing to come other than under the cover of darkness in a sort of stealthy way, not willing to be seen associating with this unlearned rabbi? He came to ask Jesus some questions. He's the one who said, Lord, how is it you teach that someone can be born again. Can he enter again into his mother's womb? Nicodemus, a wise, learned man, asked rather ignorant and simple questions. 
And we don't see him then for a while after chapter 3, but he's still there interacting, and we know that because in John 7, 51, he speaks up in the council when they're debating what to do with Jesus, and he says then, does our law judge a man without first granting him a hearing? So Nicodemus was not entirely afraid to be seen as defending Jesus, even on that early time, and then we see him There must have been some quick conference between Joseph and Nicodemus. Joseph saying, I imagine, I'll go to Pilate and get rights to the body. You go and get the things we need for preparation. Because it says Nicodemus came with 75 pounds in weight of mixed myrrh and aloes in a kind of salve. Probably took a couple slaves to carry that, a couple servants. I'm sure Joseph didn't lug something, or uh, Nicodemus didn't lug a container weighing 75 pounds all by himself. So personal cost was involved for these men, not only in the giving up of a brand new tomb, not only in the investment of buying such a large quantity of spices and and using that, but think of it. They were Orthodox Jews, and it was the Passover, and if you knew your Old Testament really well, you know that contact with a dead body contaminated you against celebrating the Passover. So they were willing to step out even against the minute regulations of their faith. And worse, probably, for them in terms of long-term effects, they were now being recognized as those who stood with Jesus. And among their peers, that would mean something. They would be distrusted. They might be scorned. They might be put out of office, something that would affect their careers for sure. I wonder what we can learn from their courage. For a long time, it was the fear of man that made them silent. How much does the fear of man make you silent in your place of employment, among your peers, in your school? You say, well, nobody's really demanding that I speak up and say anything, and yet you know the occasions when Even a simple word, not necessarily a bold, loud sermon, but a simple word that would say, well, I stand with Christ when others don't, when others profane him, when others mock him. Can we learn from their courage? But the other thing here under this second point that we should see too is that every funeral of a Christian believer is a wonderful opportunity for witness to the gospel. There are spiritual things that happen when people contemplate death and come to a funeral. I think of some of the more notable ones we've had here at Westminster, even within the last couple of years. Different people, for example, one from the medical community where this ground floor was nearly as full as it is right now, and I would say three-quarters of the people were entirely from the medical community, not necessarily believers but people who came because one of their colleagues had died. And they all heard the gospel. Not so very long ago, just a short time ago, as we honored the life of Judge Allison here, lost from our congregation. We had all of the judges of his station, six or seven of them in a row right there, sitting in a row listening to a resurrection sermon, the highest judges of our county. It's amazing how we have opportunities to reach people that we wouldn't have otherwise. 
and presiding at hundreds, literally hundreds of funerals in my ministry, I can tell you. You know, people may come with, with sad countenances and you can't read their emotions exactly and, and they might be there more out of obligation than anything else, but let me tell you, their brains are ticking and their gears are turning as the gospel is being told. And it is amazing, and I have seen in, over the long term, people who would cite something spiritually significant, a conversion or a change of view or a softening or a repentance or something that came because of seeds planted when a death came near to their life and they considered eternal things that they had not been considering very much up to that point. I'm not saying that we can expect funerals are going to produce immediate dramatic conversions. Joseph and and Nicodemus were pretty dramatic and pretty sudden, but it had been brewing for a while. We know that. It didn't just come real sudden. We need to plan as believers. I could slip in an advertisement and tell you that we have an, an opportunity for you members of this church to plan your funerals. About 15% of you have ever taken up that opportunity. If you don't know how to do that, give our office a call and we'll tell you. You can plan the witness that will be presented and you'll, your, wit, your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers may hear things that they would never hear any other way on such an opportunity. I, I always smile when uh, one of you says to me, and I, I probably hear this at least a couple times a year, if the funeral is happening for your spouse, your brother, your mother, someone, you know, you'll come to me and say, now, Pastor, be sure you get the gospel in because there are going to be unsaved people here. (laughs) Let me tell you, I've heard that many, many times, and my response to you is the same every time. What else do you think I would have to say? (laughs) I have nothing else to say if I am not saying the gospel of the cross and resurrection. That is what we talk about. That is what we present. We're not here to glorify a life. I personally take a little bit of dislike of the funeral industry's celebration of life phrase today. Come to George's celebration of life. What they mean, or what most people mean by it, let's say the majority mean, is let's celebrate George, not let's celebrate Christ in George. When we celebrate life at a funeral, we want to celebrate the life of Christ lived out in you. We may say, of course, here's a well-lived life. Fine example. Great. Look at how George exemplified humility or charity or something else. But we want to show Christ, not George. And that can be a wonderful spiritual opportunity. Thirdly then, today, from our text, I remind you this, that no Christian grave can ever imprison a soul redeemed by Christ. Lord willing, next Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, at 6.30, many of you will gather. We'll be on this little hill behind the building. It'll just be before daybreak. You'll say, well, why would a bunch of people go to a little hillside in the dark when it's cold and stand there singing hymns and listen to a short sermon? Well, I think you know why on Easter morning. 
But I want to tell you this, surrounding us up there, as you approach the center area where we gather, you'll see, and if you haven't been up there since last Easter, you'll see more than you saw last year of granite markers of departed brothers and sisters from this church who have died. In the years that cemetery's been open of new burials, 14 years, we've buried about 50 or 60 people there. And you might come up and say, well, look at all these saints who are here. But I would correct you. They're not here. They're not present. They're not in that ground. They are not contained by a concrete vault beneath the surface. Because even before we ever complete the sad but respectful work of interring a Christian's body or ashes in the ground, the eternal part of that person is no longer present on, that, on this earth. He or she is a living soul existing within the righteousness of Jesus Christ and welcomed into the fellowship of Jesus Christ as a lively soul, more alive than you, folks, I guarantee you, if you possess eternal life, it's better than the life you have right now on this earth. And those lively souls are with Christ in perfect peace, looking to a day of judgment and glorification when they will receive the gift of a resurrected body. I love some passages, just quickly, some things that give us this indication. Can I back that up from Scripture? Hebrews 12, 23 speaks about those who are gathered right now before the throne of God among the angels and Christ there with them, and they are called the spirits of righteous men made perfect. The Puritan writer John Flavel commented on that fact and on the souls or spirits of those who have departed us, Flavel said, the souls of the dead in Christ, when separated from their bodies, do not hover about their sepulchers, nor are they detained at a fictional purgatory, but forthwith, I don't bet any of you have said forthwith lately, it means immediately, forthwith they pass into glory and are with the Lord. Philippians 1.23, to depart from our bodies and be with Christ is better by far. 2 Corinthians 5.8, for a Christian to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Not somewhere else, not in a holding cell, present with the Lord. We are not held back by imprisonment in a hole in the ground or a concrete vault or a mahogany casket. As God's children in Christ, these bodies that we leave behind are simply the weak prototypes for a grand body that is going to be as God gives it to us one day in His final day. Thinking about that, thinking about the relationship between the body I have now and the body I'm going to get, I first of all say wonderful because the one I've got now isn't much good anymore. And yet somehow God who created DNA in the first place so that if I was reduced to a heap of ashes would have no trouble reassembling me as recognizably me in that eternal body. How can he do that? It's a miracle, of course. You couldn't do it. No science lab can do it. 
God can do it, and He will do it. No matter if you were a victim of Hiroshima or lost in the depths of the sea or obliterated in war, God knows His saints, and He will take your living soul, and one day at the return of Christ and the final day of all things on earth, give you a body so great, so glorious, it will be recognizable as you, but beyond that, more grand than you can possibly be. Ladies, if you were Miss Lancaster, USA, or something else, you'll be better. I guarantee it. I hope you can see that the historic fact that Jesus was buried as a descent into the earth simply typifies the end of his struggle to come and be the bearer of sins. He had to become like us in everything, even unto death, so he could defeat death. And no dungeon, no grave, no cave in the earth could keep him there because it was inevitable that he comes forth, resurrected, to bring life, eternal life to those who are his. He he preceded us into a grave to show us that there's a way out of there. Death is no longer the murky concept of Sheol that the Old Testament... You know, you can study this in the early books of the Old Testament. What did they think of life after death? They talked constantly about Sheol. They didn't even really use the words heaven or hell. They said, I will go to Sheol, to the depths of Sheol. It's on David's lips in all the Psalms. Sometimes Sheol seems to be a a semi-hopeful place. I'll be gathered to my ancestors. A lot of times, though, Sheol is is dark and dismal. And they'll say, go to Sheol where there is no hope. Well, we have light on what Sheol is. It's the presence of Christ, our Lord, our living Savior, with whom we will be immediately at death and finally as resurrected beings when he brings history of this earth to an end. So, yes, we should give the dead honorable burials. We should be respectful towards a human body that is now discarded. But we don't do it in some dismal, hopeless, wildly crying, wailing way that says, that's all there is, folks. No, we do it in the knowledge that to be buried with Christ is the great thing. You know, at the final day when we're judged, when it's determined by the Lord, where do we belong eternally? It's not going to be about how much money you had. Absolutely not. How many degrees you earned. How much respectability you gained. How high a career status you attained. How high is your memorial Stone, is it a flat one on the ground that you can walk by and miss or a 10-foot tall one that nobody can miss? Isn't going to matter a bit. The question is going to be, are you buried in Christ? And if so, no grave on this earth can hold you just as it could not hold Jesus, your Lord. May God teach our hearts to sing, O death. Where's your victory? You don't have a victory anymore. Oh, rave, where's your sting? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Father, how good 
to be free from the oppressive fear of death. We see how it weighs people down today. They chronically fear that they will not be able to perform well enough to please you, and they're right to fear that. But I pray that you would lead such people to see that they never will perform well enough to please you. They need a righteous Savior who did please you and whose righteousness can be transferred to us by faith. Thank you, Father, that even before this next weekend we, we say hallelujah that the, the Lord is risen, we can say the grave he was buried in had an exit, and so will ours. Thanks be to God. Amen.